Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're talking about spirulina. It is an edible biomass of cyanobacteria, also known as blue-green algae. Spirulina is a popular food supplement that is rich in a number of nutrients, including vitamin B1, B2, and B3, as well as copper, iron, and protein. A number of scientific studies have shown that spirulina exhibits antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and neuroprotective effects. Interestingly, um, it's noted that the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican peoples actually used spirulina as a food source until the 16th century. But today, we're going to be talking more about the modern uses of spirulina and its applications in our current day food culture. I've invited Jonas Gunther to the show. Jonas is an entrepreneur, a food activist, and a writer. He started developing solutions to grow food during his graduate program at NYU. Guided by the question of how do we need to change the way we grow, ship, and eat food to make it carbon neutral, Jonas established an experimental farm in the School of Engineering, which serves as a project platform that enables students to learn about sustainability and food by running their own mini projects, connecting their studies to the world of farming. This would eventually lead him to launch to the launch of We Are the New Farmers. Deeply passionate about creating a livable future, Jonas has also started the magazine Fighting Tomorrow, which offers a glance into a world where we have overcome climate change and implemented solutions to make the future of food exciting. He began his career as product manager at Olympus and has been recognized by the city and state New York as one of the responsible 100. He continues to work with the NYU entrepreneurial community as a mentor and founder in residence and as a mentor for Start Out. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Jonas. It's really great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what what an introduction. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's really exciting. I love this theme of entrepreneurship and and also thinking about how can we take these historic practice practices going back centuries, right? And bring it into the modern food industry. Um, I know one of your passions is really um, focused on sustainability and creating a sustainable food system. So why don't we start there? Like, why is it important to have a sustainable food system? Yeah, I mean, that that's a very good question, but like really the question is what would happen if we wouldn't have a sustainable food system and that's what we're living in right now, right? And that is that we just all suffer from a variety of problems and that is that the food that we produce isn't uh, delivering the nutrients that we need. It, uh, it destroys the environment we're living in uh, from uh, deforestation to um, the killing of insects to um, the enormous impact that we have uh, from a carbon perspective and freshwater perspective perspective. Um, we are desperately needing solutions to make our food system more sustainable and get to that point because we're at the point right now where, where we continue like this for another decade or two, then um, there probably is not going to be another planet. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. We, we have to take more action both to preserve our existing biodiversity, but also to think about ways to leverage sustainable food systems to feed the world, right? So let's 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 dive in a little bit more into spirulina because I'm sure that many of the audience members have heard of this product or of this um, blue-green algae, but they probably don't know much about, you know, how it became a food and what its kind of health properties are. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a background on spirulina. 
Yeah, sure. So um, spirulina is a type of algae. So that means it's in the same family as seaweeds like kelp or nori, um, but it's a microalgae, which means it's microscopic. It's much smaller. Um, it is packed with nutrients and vitamins. It's a really good source of plant-based protein and a variety of vitamins and minerals, as you already mentioned in your introduction. Um, it's often considered, you know, a superfood. I, I don't necessarily agree with these kind of terms, but um, just to give a, give people a perspective of um, the nutrient density that that gives people. Um, it's extremely well researched um, for the past 40 years since it's been introduced in the, in the Western world. Uh, countless studies have been done on it on the health benefits for for humans. Um, NASA has been doing a lot of research on it because they uh, consider it one of the foods that they want to send on long distance space travel because it is such a complete source of uh, of vitamins, nutrients, protein, um, and can be cultivated with minimal resources. Um, but at the same time, it's also this super fascinating organism because it is uh, quite literally the oldest food source ever. It's like 3.6 billion years old. That's billion. That means like it's primordial soup old. Um, and this type of organism, cyanobacteria, are actually the reason why we have oxygen on the planet. It's the first photosynthetic active um, type of organism that's been around. Um, and um, what that means is because it's so incredibly old, the metabolism is incredibly efficient. So it knows exactly what to do with almost nothing available. They're really efficient machines that turn um, like carbon as well as um, base uh, nutrients or base salts into the building blocks of lives from fatty acids to proteins to carbs and, and everything else, uh, which makes them super interesting for, for today, for, for a path forward into a more sustainable future. That's great. And so when we think about spirulina from a larger market perspective, you know, just how big is trade in this, in this, in this organism? Like how big of a deal is this for the human dietary industry and the animal industry? I, I know it's used in a number of different ways. Yeah, it, it's rapidly growing. Um, and, uh, and the reason for that is that we, we increasingly find new applications for it. So traditionally, um, spirulina is something that has been grown um, overseas. Like it's a it's a algae that really loves tropical climate, so it grows in Southeast Asia, or it's cultivated today in in Southeast Asia and in India and China, um, and it's then dehydrated into into a powder, which is the most common form in, in the image that you just showed here. So it, it looks like a, a dark green powder um, that you know people use in juices and smoothies. It's a very common nutrient supplement. Uh, but it also has um, some some downsides to it. This type of powder, it, like it's, it's a little bit bitter. It has like it's actually infamous for its rather bad taste. Um, and uh, you know, it's a powder, so it's not really a food. People don't think of it as a food. They think of it as something that that's an additive to 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 the things that they make as a supplement, but not really as a food. Um, the industry has been dealing with a lot of issues in terms of contamination and purity of the products. It's generally rather a low quality product these days. Um, and despite all of this, it's still a um, hundreds of million dollar market just in the United States and, and even bigger beyond. And that brings me kind of to today where, where, the, where the industry is heading towards. And that is um, that people realize what a fascinating organism, um, spirulina, but also other types of microalgae are and uh, what kind of potential it has. Because we can cultivate that stuff and grows extremely fast. And we can use that almost as 
biomanufacturers, uh, biofactories that can basically just provide whatever we want um, and, and take out what we need. And lots of companies that try to isolate protein from it or that try to isolate certain pigments from, uh, from it to create dyes. Um, so it's a rapidly growing industry and there are more and more applications in food and fertilizers and biofuels um, in bioplastics. Um, it's, it's growing and growing and growing. And um, what we do essentially, what we're kind of the, the, the next step and what separates us from that is that, you know, we started out with this powder and, and that, that's what, what you've seen. But we really believe that we are the new farmers that food needs to be fresh. Um, like good food is something that should go bad eventually. Um, and so we developed a tech that allows us to grow food much closer to where we live. So we don't end up with a dehydrated powder, but rather a fresh and unprocessed product, which has better flavors, better nutritional availability, higher nutrient content, um, and just generally more versatility so that people can actually start using that as a food ingredient like people have used it like centuries ago. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point too, is I'm, I'm sure the flavor of the powdered dehydrated product is going to be very different from the fresh product. And historically it was consumed, I believe, fresh, although maybe they dried it as well. I don't, I don't know what they know from an archaeological perspective on that. Um, but what what can you share with us about the technologies to to cultivate this in kind of a um, a closer to home setting. I'm assuming you're talking about some sort of aquaculture that can be done indoors or like, or in ponds, tanks, like how does this all work? Yeah. So um, historically um, it's been something that's been harvested in the wild. It naturally occurs in, in lakes in Africa around Lake Chad, um, as well as in Mexico um, in, the, in the Lake Texcoco, which is the, the lake complex that used to exist around Mexico city. Um, and then people would just harvest it off the, the top of the lake. Um, today we're a little bit further ahead of that, like the lot more purity, a lot more controlled uh, con uh, cultivation of that. But for the past 30, 40 years, it's been typically done in like a large open pond. So we create artificial ponds that refer to as raceways. Um, they uh, are located in a very warm climate, so you can get a lot of sun and you can constantly have a water temperature between 85 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit, so really nice and, and, and warm. Um, and, um, but they're still, <clears throat> they're still located outside. You still have very little control over the actual um, cultivation methods. And, um, and today what we do is then the next step in, in this process where we grow indoors in a controlled environment with tanks that are completely enclosed. So we have really 24 seven control of what's happening inside. Plus we also have full control over, um, you know, making sure that no other types of algae, no, no leaves, no insects, no nothing can actually get into those tanks because in the end you want to eat spirulina and you don't want to eat a, <laughs> random blend of microorganisms that uh, grow in in the natural environment but not in in your food hopefully so um yeah that that's where we are today that's great so one of the themes that we talk a lot about on the show are some of the the advantages and disadvantages of monoculture so in a way this kind of tank system is a form of monoculture are there are there any problems with disease that can pop up in microalgae i know nothing about how these are farmed are there any problems when you grow them as like a single genetic source like or i don't know yeah i mean it's it's a good point but the 
the cultivation of algae and plants are, is very different because in, yeah. in nature, um, you know, plants grow all over and you have like food jungles and typically you have lots of different plants growing next to each other and biodiversity is good in that sense. Uh, but what we grow, they're microscopic. Like the difficulty that we would have is we cannot go and just like pick whichever ones we want because they're just too tiny to do that. So we need to yeah. ensure that we have purity of cultures um, that we have, that we don't have other types of um, organisms. If you grow outside, whether that is completely natural in a, in a lake or whether that's in a controlled artificial pond, um, you may run into other types of algae that can, that can grow in it. For, for sure, outside in the lake. I mean, it's a it's a thriving ecosystem. That's what it should be. And even though there might be algae blooms and then a specific strain is taking over, um, you still have you know other things living in in that environment. So um, it's really hard to separate those things. So in this case, we really want to ensure that there is monoculture because we don't want to have other types of algae that can produce toxins or other algae that could potentially be harmful for human consumption in our cultures. Um, and the interesting thing is that it's actually something that the algae enforces itself. Um, spirulina and, and um, the type of spirulina that we grow is an extremophile. It grows in a, in a very high pH environment. Um, and it's also very aggressive, which means that like it takes over the, the culture very quickly and it like uh, outcompetes everything else that's existing in, in, um, in this tank, which is in a natural environment a little bit more difficult because that's considered an algae bloom. But for us, it's perfect because we don't want bacteria, yeasts, or um, any kind of other types of algae growing in, you know, in our systems. Cool. So I'm sure many of the listeners are probably wondering, you know, what does this look like? If, if, imagine if we were going into one of one of these growing areas. Can you can you paint a picture for us? Like, what is what do these tanks look like? How does it all start? Is it just like a, a tank of water that all of a sudden becomes very blue or green, or what does it look like? And how do you know when these are ready for harvest? And how does that whole harvest process work with these very tiny organisms? That's an excellent question. Let me talk about the blue and the green thing first, and then explain how yeah. how you this because uh, we see this a lot that like um, and I'm sure some of your listeners have seen the the blue algae that's like this uh, super vibrant blue color um, sometimes they, it's called blue magic um, very good marketing term by the way um, but what it really is is uh, you take up a, a blue green algae blue green because you have blue and a green pigment in it chlorophyll for the green and phycocyanin for the blue and then you process it and remove Chlorophyll, which you know, Cassandra is a really powerful antioxidant. Like you don't really yes. want to put it out, uh, and you that you highly process the stuff to end up with a green powder, which you know is not as nutritious as the original pro uh, product. But hey, it's magic, so now it looks cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm very careful about the stuff. I'm very much on the on the side of let's keep things as unprocessed as possible. Um, not completely against any kind of processing, but there's also no need to overdo it. And so that's the philosophy behind everything that we do here. And um, what that means for, for our cultivation is that we want to make sure that we can um, really ensure purity in the process because we don't want to do downstream processing and we don't want to like do too much to it afterwards. Um, you can imagine our facility really as a crossbreed between a brewery and a vertical farm. Um, if you haven't seen a vertical farm, they're like 
stacked like shelves like the very tall shelves with like individual layers of cultivation on, on each shelf the grow lights inside um and the difference for us is because we don't grow plants that grow above the water level and above the roots um our light shines straight into the water um okay. so all the hydroponic farmers out there will be like oh my god it's going to cause so much algae growth yeah exactly <laughs> that's what we want to do here we want to grow algae so we have these flat tanks that are filled with a nutrient solution that provide all the benefits and all the nutrients that uh, algae needs to grow. And then we have um, a starter culture inside. Um, so we start with a light green water is the best way to describe it. Um, so it's relatively diluted. We provide light and then we infuse um, uh, carbon, carbon dioxide and there are other forms of carbon in the process as well and then the algae grows much like a plant would on on uh, on on in the soil um algae grows in water so it takes up the nutrients it takes up the sunlight it does photosynthesis so it turns carbon into oxygen remove carbon uh, we remove oxygen from the water in the process and over time it turns darker and darker even though i don't like that comparison it's a bit like the the pond uh, that, that's starting to turn when you have that kind of bloom because that's what we want to do in a very controlled environment. So we measure the density. It's actually very easy to do that with like optical sensors, like mm -hmm. see how light can penetrate. And um, then at a certain point, we harvest. And that means we take the water, we run it through several filters to ultra fine 25 micron filters that, um, that take out this algae. And you end up with a, um, a watery, dark green, um, for the lack of a better word, sludge um, that's just thick, but still with a high water content. And um, from there on, we can do multiple things. So we press the uh, algae at this point, so we remove excess water. So you end up with something that's about the consistency of hummus. So a moon oh. that's dark green, like really dark green. And mm -hmm. uh, that's the starting point for everything that we do. And that's what was referred to as fresh spirulina. You have a, a paste. Um, that we sell by itself, um, or, or we turn that into into frozen products to extend the shelf life a little bit, pre-portioned little cubes that are perfect more for like smoothies, if you make a little smoothie, something like that. That's fascinating. I mean, I can just, I, I can really picture this. It is like an interesting cross between a brewery and a vertical farm. Mm -hmm. um, and so so you're, you're freezing the products, you're creating them into paste. And I guess I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself because we haven't got into yet like how we are the farmers was founded. Um, so why don't we, why don't we step back a second and tell me like, you know, how, what was the founding story and kind of what led you to this process? Because I think this is really fascinating. I mean, we've also just, just as a framework, we've also spoken with different companies that are working on other areas of kind of plant-based proteins, you know, we're talking about pea proteins and soil, soy proteins. And, um, it's interesting to see all these non-meat, um, sources of proteins, um, so what brought you to Spirulina and, and founding this? Yeah. this what do you mean? Did you, would you be surprised if I tell you that I always wanted to be an algae farmer back home in Germany? Like that, that's... <laughs> Is that, was that your dream growing up? I, I don't know. That's uh... <laughs> not, not anybody's uh, dream when they're eight years old. I, I used to be, you know, that funny, funny sites. I, I, I wanted to be a gardener, uh, whatever that meant as a child. But like I always wanted to do something with plants. And uh, well, that's also basically the story then how I got into this because um, what, like 16, 20 years later, 
um, I I was working for Olympus, as he said in my in my introduction, and um, while I enjoyed the work there, I was looking for something that was really more related to what I was passionate about. And I realized whenever I was coming home, I would be very deeply passionate about cooking and exploring new foods. And I would always grow some stuff, always have some tomatoes on the balcony or some basil on the windowsill at the very least. And I took just a lot of, um, a, you know, a lot of interest and a lot of uh, joy out of the process of growing something and turning that into food that I can eat myself. And at the same time, I studied engineering. I'm an industrial engineer, um, and I wanted to do something with tech. But up on that, up until that point, that was something that was very much um, contradictive because I didn't want to be like uh, in food tech and processing things, and like that didn't work for me. I always had this purity idea about food, and I learned about vertical farming at that point, and it was like, wow, okay, so you can combine your tech aspiration with your food and with what you like to do. Um, and so that was my starting point of my journey. And I, I wanted to learn more about the food system. I learned about the issues that I mentioned in the, in the beginning. And one thing in particular is the thing that resonated with me or that, that went made click and was like, that's exactly what I want to work on. And that is the carbon footprint of a food system. Because <clears throat> uh, that's one of the biggest issues that no one's talking about that we actually have when it comes to climate change. Um, about a third to probably even more of all man-made emissions are coming from agriculture and food. And unlike other industries like energy, for example, we don't really have scalable solutions to bring down our carbon footprint. We can, like if, if um, I don't know, Elon Musk or if, if, um, if you know, Bezos and Gates would come around and be like, I put $10 billion down to, you know, bring our energy systems to renewables. We could do it. Like we know how to do it. Like it would be a bit more expensive, but we, we can figure this out. And um, that's not true for food because mm. we're extremely dependent on um, the two sides of this. We're extremely dependent on, on animal proteins um, around the world. And um, that's making up 50% of all food emissions. So out of these like 30% overall, 15%, like 10 to 15% of all globally uh, man-made emissions are coming from animal husbandry. And um, the problem is we don't really have a way out of this because uh, we need to produce protein. Um, it's highly unlikely that within the next 10 years, the entire world is going to go uh, vegan or at least vegetarian. Um, that's not going to happen, um, especially in developing countries. And then you have a few other options, right? You have alternative proteins. You have, um, like, I should say alternative meats rather than proteins because um, you have the Beyond Meats, the Impossible Burgers, and they're nice and they're, they're solving some issue, but they're, A, not as, like, they're not good for us. They're not as nutritious. And also um, they are um, not necessarily that much better from, a, from, a, from an environmental perspective. Um, they're better than beef, but they're still not carbon neutral in any way. Um, and then you have like the lab grown meats and you know that kind of stuff. And that will still take another 10 years to, to actually be available around the world in an affordable way. And uh, then the question is, do people actually want to eat this? Like, do you want to eat something that's grown in a lab in a, in a Petri dish? And um, I'm sure there will be people and it will fit into 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 a specific group of, of folks. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to take over as easily as some people make it 
see. Uh, yeah, there's some problems too with like cell culture. I mean, I do a lot of cell culture in my lab uh, for for scientific research, and you need animal like materials, like fetal bovine serum, which is like you know fetal cow blood yeah. juices it's basically the way that the, the best yeah. way to explain it um to grow those things so like they're not like it's very difficult to completely remove animals from that from that product chain and as you said the carbon neutrality issue for example with pea proteins you have peas you know different stages of the pea cultivation or the the protein extrusion those materials are getting shipped back and forth across the globe as part of the process so like that's a problem <laughs> when it but comes to carbon neutrality. Yeah. yeah. And against any of those solutions, I'm just saying none of them are going to be enough to actually get us there. And, yeah. uh, and then the second big component is that we're still so so dependent on, on fossil fuels throughout the entire supply chain in agriculture. Uh, all of our fertilizers are derived from natural gas. All of our pesticides are derived from fossil fuels. Um, like if we think about just from a physical energy production system all of this is derived from coal gas and oil um, instead of electrified like we can't, cannot even switch it over to renewable energy immediately because we need these inputs to feed people so we're really in a very bad spot here and we don't really realize it that much and um and that's where where the I, i'm going back to the beginning now so what, what do we do like what, how do we actually get there and um so I started doing some research and I um, came across microalgae and microalgae are just these super fascinating organisms that grow super fast. They don't need arable land, so we don't have deforestation issues. We don't need that much fresh water, which is great because that's also a huge crisis that not enough people are talking about. Um, then we um, can actually have very low carbon footprint. Um, dependent on cultivation methods, you can actually feed carbon into the cultures. Um, so you actually increase the carbon input and you can actually cultivate with a very low to zero carbon carbon um, carbon impact. Um, so awesome. We just have to find a way to make people eat it. And um, that's how we approach this and how can we actually make microalgae something that is as simple for people as possible and as exciting as possible. So we incorporate that in more and more uh, foods. So tell me, so we're talking about, you have these products, you have fresh product. Can you describe for us what, what would just eating fresh pressed microalgae actually taste like? What does fresh spirulina taste like? Is it fishy tasting? Is it like, or like, I just, I have no idea. I have never eaten this before. So <laughs> paint me a palette picture yeah, of what it would be yeah, like. And the, the nice thing about microalgae is it's relatively neutral. Like I like to describe the flavor of fresh microalgae as mineral water. Like you, if you just taste it by itself, you get the mineral flavors. You know that there's a lot of like um, iron and sodium and a little bit of potassium and so on in there. And you can taste that. Uh, but the moment you blend this into anything, you don't taste this anymore. Uh, it does have a very interesting and, and exciting texture. Like when we give this to chefs, they're usually very excited because it's a very rich and creamy texture that's not fat-based, it's protein-based. Um, so it, it coats your mouth in a very nice way and um, it's very exciting to work with. And it, like if you add it to, to, let's say, a smoothie at home, it's a bit like yogurt or frozen banana. It gives a lot of uh, thickness and creaminess to your smoothie. So from that perspective, it's really nice. But we're really talking about 
a blank canvas that can be used in a variety of different ways. And that is a protein source that is also an excellent source of micronutrients that is also completely unprocessed. That's great. So what are what are the some some of your of your favorite ways to uh to eat this? Like do you do you is, is there something beyond smoothies or like you know you described it as almost like a hummus? Like could yeah. you eat it like a hummus? Like how, yeah. Totally. Yeah, there, there are so many different ways of using it. Like my go-to is simply because I have a smoothie every morning, I add it to my smoothie. But I know that, um, for example, my co-founder loves to put it on a little bit of toast, um, adds a little bit of salt on top and a little bit of, of uh, lime or lemon juice and has that as a, as a breakfast. Um, it really, really works well also in all kinds of um, breakfast foods like overnight oats and scrambled eggs in, um, in, in a yogurt bowl. Um, we had we made fantastic pesto with it. Um, you can make okay. salad dressings in with your hummus. If you make a hummus or a guacamole, guacamole is green anyway, so you can make a, an extra yeah. green guacamole. So it's they're, they're like um, it's the starting point is really your imagination and your creativity. Um, it's it's a paste that can be easily incorporated into a lot of different things. Um, yeah, that's great. So as we as we wrap up, I guess one big question I have for you is, you know, what is your future vision for spirulina? Like where, let's say 10, 20 years down the road, where where do you hope that this this food source might be, where what its place might be within our food system? Yeah. Um, so just recently I came across a study um, from, from a major institute in the United States that was uh, saying that they expect that by 2050 about... 15 to 20% of all globally consumed protein will be algae derived. Um, and since most of the seaweeds that we know don't, aren't really high in protein, we're really talking about microalgae here. And um, that is super fascinating because it means that we will figure out a way to incorporate that into all kinds of foods. And we already do, by the way, like uh, we already incorporate algae in so many foods we just don't know about it like algae is one of the most common uh, emulsifiers if you had yogurt if you had if you brushed your teeth uh, you likely had algae in there um, it's, <laughs> a very, it's a very common ingredient that people are not familiar with um, and that is true for for fresh algae as well um, and we like I believe that we will find ways to incorporate that in so many different things so that we can't even imagine right now. Um, it will be an ingredient in your in your veggie patties. It will be potentially it might even be an ingredient in your in your lab grown meat that you mix in. So you have one part uh, lab grown meat and one part algae, and you have this new um, minced meat uh, situation that that you can use that is super nutritious, but also rich in protein and also tastes like meat. Um, so. There are many, many ways in which we can think about this, but what is really the important thing is that we produce more of it. So if you ask me what's my vision, I want to build the largest indoor spirulina farm, or I should say largest indoor microalgae farm in the entire United States, um, so that this stuff is going to be wildly available, that it's affordable for everyone, and that we can actually um, have a nutritious, sustainable, and protein-rich uh, path into the future. Oh, that's amazing. I like that vision. I like also how it could be disseminated to different cities. I mean, you could have like algae hubs, right, to, to feed, to, to grow locally. Well, bef before we go, I, I just you know, was 
thinking of, of one other thing I'd like to show the, the listeners that do tune in to the show on YouTube. And that would be, would you mind showing us some of your products? I think you may have some in the freezer. Absolutely. Let me grab it yeah. real quick. Be great. All right. Fresh from the freezer. Awesome. These are our jars. Um, it's actually a prototype model, so it doesn't even have our standard label here on the top like all the other ones. Um, but they all come with like these cute little stickers because um, what we do is we ship the jar and we, it's made out of plastic, which I don't really like, but for freezer food is really the best way. Um, and then all subsequent shipments are going to be in refill bags. So we encourage you to keep that one with a bunch of stickers like you, you know, put on your on your water bottle or something and make it make it your own. And um, then what we have inside are these like frozen cubes of spirulina. Um, about, oh, like, cool. How large inch. are those? Like an inch? Yeah, an inch, um, inch by an inch by an inch. They're 12 grams each. And... Um, well, they, they just pop into your blender when you make a smoothie and they're like about the same amount of nutrients as two cups of leafy greens. So they're like super packed with nutrients. Two of those wow. cubes, same amount of protein as an egg. So they're like really, really good source of, of protein, really good source of um, micronutrients. Um, you know, as I like to say, no planets have been harmed in the making of this cube. Um, they're sustainable. And um, yeah, they're... I love them. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Yunus, where can we direct our listeners to learn more about uh, these products and your company? Is there a website we can um, send them to? Absolutely. So um, best way to actually learn more about us is on our website. Um, our company name is We Are The New Farmers. The whole thing, mission statement and name. Um, and our website is new-farmers.com. Um, so if you if you type that in, you get straight to our website. You can also find us on all social media, TikTok, Instagram, the handle We Are The New Farmers. Um, and yeah, and also at a bunch of events in, in New York City, if you if you happen to live in New York City. That's great. So do you have any um, upcoming events this summer you want to you want to highlight? Um, so we just ended up our, uh, with our vegetarian food festival, so I can't tell people about that anymore. But we've been uh, we, we're going to be at multiple farmers markets across uh, Brooklyn and Park Slope, as well as in Greenpoint for the folks local. Um, and um, you can meet us there every Sunday. That's fabulous! Wow. Well, thank you so much, Jonas, for sharing this these insights into spirulina. I mean, I think I need to, I need to definitely try this because I don't know how I haven't had spirulina yet, but it, I think it's time. And I want to go, I want to go with the fresh stuff, not the dry powder from what it sounds yes, like. Yes, so. right. I know you, <laughs> you, you dig a lot into studies. You will see there's a bunch of stuff out there, how good it is. And I think it's just a matter of making people aware of it and, and getting this out of there because it's such an amazing food and we definitely need, need more of this. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. All right, foodies, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded today on a streamcast. I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in each week to hang out with us. I want to also send a special shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for producing an excellent show every week with us. Um, I want to also remind you, you can find this episode and all of our others on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. And you can check out the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany under the um, Foodie Pharmacology playlist. 
I'm going to be hitting the road this summer, traveling to a lot of different places, um, ranging from Jamaica to Albania and Kosovo and the UK and Italy and then Alaska and New Hampshire. I'm going to be all over the place. So I'll be bringing you shows from some very interesting locations um, on site this summer. So be sure to um, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss any of these really cool upcoming episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.